Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation movie podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in our critics series, I am joined again by David Polanski, who has been here before to talk about beautiful movies and uh, movies that are, so to speak, beautiful, but not about beautiful things. We talked about Colonel Blimp, the wonderful wartime Paul Pressburger picture about the English spirit and English moral virtue, the gentleman class. And we have also talked about dystopia or, or how to think about dystopia in our times, about a kind of regime that just doesn't work anymore, where nobody's really competent and nobody's even profiting very well in Terry Gilliam's Brazil. And now we're returning to this uh, rather more unsavory but timely theme of dystopia, of future tyranny, tyranny now with Soylent Green, the 1973 Chuck Heston story. It's a detective story. It's an odd dystopian picture of post-apocalyptic America where the oceans dry up and the population is vastly exterminated and the survivors starved. Terrible sort of thing that somehow was in the early 70s, the despair after the enthusiasm of the 60s, maybe. So it's also a movie on its 50th anniversary and the movie you wrote about earlier this year, David, which is what got me interested in this. But I didn't really get angry enough to do a podcast and to bother you about this up until I read some asshole in The Economist try to talk about Soylent Green and try to skate around the fact that The Economist is now for the Soylent Green agenda. You know, what was once moralistic denunciation of the evil upper classes is now moralistic appropriation and uh, progress and enlightenment or propagated by the same upper classes, actually, and their uh, strivers and unions. So I thought, okay, now I need uh, David's help. So I'm glad that you're uh, uh, interested in the movie, that you've written about this. And it was the first time I read something, but you say something very interesting about Soylent Green. Let's start there. Tell me about your thoughts on the movie and what do you even know about the movie in the first place? Yeah, it's a funny thing. You know, normally... If I write on a movie, it's probably because I am particularly passionate, you know, or, about the movie, to, or you know, or, or it's a personal favorite, or something, or it's a classic, or what have you. Soylent Green is none of these, I would have to say. And in fact, it was positioned to me by the very clever editors of the New Atlantis as something worth writing on. And with the hook being, we were hitting its 50th anniversary, and that was interesting. I thought challenged to think about something to say about a movie that was sort of generally floating around in a cultural atmosphere. More really is a bit of pop cultural as a us more than anything else, thanks to its climax. But not something I given much thought to. Uh, and then, of course, over time, I began to think I did have something to say about it. And more broadly, about the way that you know, these kinds of pulp fiction uh, often have a way of, I think, reflecting democratic and, and, and widespread anxieties in often very interesting and compelling way. I don't think that's uh, unique in any way to Soil and Green. It's not even unique to uh, science fiction. You can see it, you can see it, for example, with something like, you know, Charles Bronson's Death Wish. You can see it with, you know, with First Blood. You can really see it with, I think, most of the 80s action movies where they sort of, which take on this weird post-Vietnam intensity, and you can see them sort of processing the meaning of the loss in Vietnam through this, through these completely over-the-top, but for me, wonderful, absolutely wonderful action movies. Suffice to say, across sort of broad spectrum, I do think there's something to be said for not just middle-brow entertainment, but almost sort of low-quality or in some way pulpy entertainment. Uh, in the way that it just seems to reflect something about the demotic, you know, sentiments of the time. So Soylent Green is very much a film of its time, both in the sense that it reflects this sort of grimy, downtrodden sense of, you know, 70s urban decay, 
you know, just kind of filtered through this extreme dystopian scenario, but also because it reflects a very particular anxiety, the late great planet Earth stuff that you started to see coming out really in the wake of the hippie dream. This produced a lot of bad art. It also produced at least one first-rate song, which is what I take Neil Young's After the Gold Rush to be about. But it's filtered down now, and now it's still with us. You know, it's found a new kind of energy thanks to the climate change, uh, the politics of climate change, for sure. But certainly at that time in the 70s and through up to about the 1980, I think this was a very common sense. You know, this day, basically every basically extreme and dystopian, highly pessimistic projection about, the, about our ecological future had been absorbed and treated as something like gospel, at least in the pop cultural sphere, which, you know, where people didn't really have you know, the capacity or the priors to be able to sort of, you know, analyze or assess the more extreme claims being made by the uh, the environmentalist at that time. And so sort of a film like Soul and Green is where all that stuff sort of lands, I would say. Yeah, I, I think you make a very good point here that in the less pretentious art or the art that at least is not treated as respectable, it's somehow much likelier to get the, the raw sentiment of the not say of the nation, but something that's happening within the nation, but for whatever reason doesn't really come out even in the press necessarily. That's not something we can have now. I wouldn't be able to point to anything in the pop culture that you could say, these people were paying attention to America in 2021 or 2022 and something came out of it. It's not necessarily great art, but it's of importance given that America is of importance. It's certainly of importance to us because this is what we are stuck in the middle of. We don't really have that now. So in, in recent years, I felt more the lack of these sort of cultural products, which weren't quite bad, partly because they, they do reflect their time, they don't really distort it, but partly because they achieve a certain kind of status. As you say, somehow culture turns to parody and people end up, uh, I guess, with online memes about soil and green being people. Uh, but that's not nothing. It's uh, anybody who whose curiosity is piqued by these sorts of memes will find out uh, to his shock that we have in certain ways not at all changed and in a certain in certain ways we have uh, turned into the thing that we were worried about 50 years ago in as much as there is a we the audience of the movie the object of the movie the, what's happening to america is not necessarily uh, something to do with the intention of the artists or their particular craft even somebody who doesn't know much about the 70s or 60s say the ordinary uh, american teenager or college kid has absolutely no idea that life existed before social media like people used to say that uh, they didn't think anything existed before color tv and so on and so forth these things just happen that way but i think that somebody in position would grasp that it's weird that there are similarities and perverse dissimilarities 50 years from then to now, when you look at that story and compare it to our own media, and indeed, as you say, our own moral concerns. Maybe the first thing that comes across, if you watch Soil and Green, that with the arrival of the environmentalist movement sometime in the 60s, uh, we remoralized nature. It wasn't just, I don't know, American ad campaigns to get people to stop littering or policy changes to put some teeth into the stop littering campaigns. But way beyond that, just the world in which we live became moralized again in somewhat hysterical fashion, if we're being honest. But I think maybe that's not a surprise when you come up with a popular way of moralizing the world. It's probably always going to tend a little more to the hysterical than to any other sentiment. And since that is now considered an issue of morality, 
it would be hard to have, say, certain green the story because there's no surprise. You could say that people get it at minute one. People feel it at minute two and three and four and so on. The movie starts, after all, with this montage of American progress, the American dream, that turns into gas masks pollution, the smog in L.A. or whatnot, the miseries of industrialism, industry, maybe capitalism, society, maybe America is self-destructive. Maybe it is, as you're suggesting, after the gold rush. And, uh, and, and we might not even be able to live with it. That, I would say, is the mood of a lot of disturbed people nowadays. But it's always in the back of the mind of most people who aren't too disturbed by this stuff. You don't have to be very sensitive to, uh, to feel uh, worried or maybe even just have a general idea that we are doomed. Uh, you're not going to feel strongly about it or do something about it, but you feel that way nevertheless. It's in the back of your mind somehow. I think that's uh, that was only starting then, so the story has a moral plausibility because it has this emotional plausibility. It builds up to horror. Nowadays, I think maybe we start there and we just don't necessarily notice it in a certain way we've become desensitized. I mean, what's interesting about the film is that I think it's perceived as being one kind of thing, and it's really a different kind of thing. And what it's perceived as is a sort of, a, you know, on the surface, you know, it's it, the narrative is it's the story of a conspiracy theory, right? It's a story of a conspiracy that gets uncovered. The conspiracy is to uh, basically process the recently euthanized into uh, foodstuffs, which can then be fed to the remaining population at a time of, you know, depleted resources. But in a, the typical sort of arc of a narrative like that is the conspiracy gets uncovered and this provides a resolution, right? We now know the truth and hopefully this will make things better. But actually, if you really look, to, look at the film, the reason that they're doing this isn't because they're necessarily bad guys, although I suppose maybe some of them are, you know, are depicted as bad guys. It's because they basically run out of options. And the sort of the implication, I think, is that they actually have depleted their resources so thoroughly that people are going to starve if they don't start eating each other in some form or another. Uh, this is a far more pessimistic narrative than the one that you get with a sort of conspiracy where if you just if we can just uncover the conspiracy and get rid of the people who are you know who are, who are, who are propagating it uh then we you know we have some kind of solution there is no solution here actually the only thing you can really say is well now we know the truth which i guess is socratic in some sense but is mostly in fact just terribly pessimistic and it reflects almost a nihilistic sense of what our real options are Obviously, that turned out not to be the case in a, on a lot of levels, at least so far. We've already passed the year in which uh, soil green is supposed to have taken place. We're still not eating each other, basically. We are getting into possibly the bug eating and willful euthanasia aspect part. And that's something we can discuss. But we haven't, you know, obviously things aren't quite as bad as all that. And it, it's definitely a tricky thing. Uh, as far as, you know, as speaking of someone who is not opposed to uh, various forms of environmentalist sentiment, how to avoid that kind of nihilism, which obviously leads to, you know, something like simply giving up. And I think you can see this a bit maybe with some of the wildfires discussions that are now going on, where every time something merely gets linked to the specter of climate change, it suddenly gets raised to this larger macro problem, which somehow, and somehow, you know, as if we simply need to accept that we live in a world where things are going to happen until there's some sort of impossibly comprehensive shift uh, that is always somehow on the horizon, which I think does take away the uh, emphasis from, you know, the, what I would take to be the political problem, the political emphasis. The political emphasis always has to be, there's a problem today and there's a problem tomorrow. What are we doing about it? We can't always solve for every possible thing. How are we fixing these problems? 
And I, so I think it leads to a kind of defeatism, uh, this way of thinking, certainly. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And it's strangely a very Chuck Heston thing, right? The one thing that Heston is more famous for than uh, Soylent Green is finally did it, you maniacs, you finally did it, Planet of the Apes, which again has this odd character. The end of the story solves nothing. Once you find out what has happened, the whole point is that it's too late to do anything about it. There's something very attractive morally in this sort of vision of catastrophe, of all comprehensive catastrophe, the end of things. And I think politically and morally, part of that is, as you were saying, it means we don't really need to do anything about today because there is nothing you can do. You somehow become aware of the futility of human efforts. And once you become aware of that, you might just say, it's not really worth it. Whatever successes we could achieve today, you can stop a wildfire here, you can stop some flooding there, but is it really worth doing? To, to believe it's worth doing, you'd have to restore, in fact, an entire political vision of things where you do believe at some level there is a tomorrow, there's a next generation, there's a next century maybe. Uh, that doesn't work if uh, every event reveals to you your existential weakness. Uh, and so it seems that somehow these kinds of stories is not just that they're not about a conspiracy, that level of politics where we're suspicious of the elites and from some kind of anti-elite, maybe populist position, we want to blow the whistle. We want an expose. We want to reveal that people who are rich are also wicked. There's worse than that, as you say. What if what you find out is that all the rich people doing all of the evil things don't really have any options? They are as much slaves of the system as we are. They are uh, sinking on the same boat we are sinking on and about at the same rate. There is no escape for them either. In a strange way, I would say that uh, you, you could come to think that the, the rich evil people are morally more admirable because they're facing this extinction event with a more activity in them. They're not simply giving up. Uh, that there's one thing left to do, have the, the starving eat the dying, uh, but they're willing to go even in that uh, horrifying direction. It's the most modern, too perfect thing, because it means going beyond all moral restraints, going beyond the sense of sacred that prohibits cannibalism. I'm not sure what exactly people who are very sophisticated and modern would say that makes cannibalism bad, but we all somehow know this is unholy. You can't do that. You can't start eating the corpses. But, you know, uh, in a situation of necessity, necessity dictates uh, and, and morality and justice must uh, simply uh, uh, be silent, so to speak, obey. There, there you could say th this kind of movie making opposes th th these two things radically. The political concern and the, the moral concern, the, the question about what can we do? Uh, we have to face facts. We have to deal with the circumstances. The circumstances may not be good or much less ideal, but they have the force of necessity for us. We have to deal with today and tomorrow and next year. We have to. And, and that's on one side of the things, and it's the evil people who are, I think, that way. And then there are the protagonists, the good people, the moralistic people who refuse altogether to have that kind of concern and say that only on the basis of justice being more important than necessity, only on the basis of our utter freedom from our circumstances, uh, maybe including from our own nature, can we at all act? Only if we could conceive of ourselves as somehow responsible for the whole environment and somehow together with the environment acting, then we can do something. Otherwise, everything we do is just further exploitation, is just further immiseration, it's just making things worse. Every time you're making things better in politics, from a certain environmental point of view, you're making things worse. You're just enabling more consumption, more energy creation and exploitation and so on and so forth.
No, I think that's all right. I mean, one of the and one of the interesting things about these sorts of discussions and, and this theme is the way that it does cut across what we think of as conventional uh, political cleavages. I mean, there's a lot of ways it can go. But if we take the bottom, there's the sort of question is, how can we live within within this environment? How can we live with how can we live on the earth? You know, there is a sense of, you know, the need for some kind of constraint and some kind of recognition of limitations, which in a sense is a conservative viewpoint. It's a conservative way of thinking, but it is one that in practice has been so associated politically with the left, uh, at least since, you know, the 1960s or so. Obviously, that wasn't always the case. You have the Teddy Roosevelt's and whatnot. But we think of it as basically left wing. It's very hard to unpack these things, you know, particularly since that, you know, it, it's now, I think, kind of accepted that the sort of Reaganite consensus of left, you know, kind of, you know, putting fusionism into practice you know, we'll have markets and we'll have something like social conservatism and all this stuff will somehow come together. That's fractured. And we understand that there were always tensions there, just as there are in any political coalition. But certainly, you know, these things are not essentially bound up with one another. Meanwhile, it's still the case in the year 20, the current year that environmentalism, for the most part, is heavily bound up with the left, Some, sometimes and, and, and sometimes with the more radical greens, but sometimes with this sort of very mainstream version of the left, the kind of stuff you get with sort of World Economic Forum, where, you know, every two seconds you'll see some new person who will certainly owe uh, with far more assets than most of us telling you why you have to have why you have to live with less or we need, you know, to reduce to call the world's population by 95 percent or some other horrific thing. But what's interesting to me is like uh, that's obviously insane. It's taken to a non-insane level. Is it wrong? I mean, you have these strong religious right sort of views of I think, I guess I would associate this with someone like a Ross Douthat. Maybe this is unfair. But, you know, this sort of pro-natalism. Well, I have kids. I'm pro-natalist. But do we think there should be, in Matt, you know, in Matt Iglesias' view, one billion Americans, you know, leaving aside our existing housing shortage problems? Like, no, that seems horrible. Such a mockery of Japan, you know, almost. You know, once people began to realize that, you know, after the 90s, you know, into the 90s, that Japan was not going to be the coming rival. United States. And re- one of the things that began to happen is that it had, you know, it began to, to, to see a lowering of its population. And you're sort of, um, you're, you know, you're more kind of full speed ahead neoliberal capitalist sites were like, well, they just need to import immigrants. Now, Japan didn't want to do that, right? Japan likes being Japanese. Japan is very Japanese, uh, to any, uh, as anyone who's been there might know, which is fine, speaking as a non-Japanese person. But what they had to do was bring down, and, and you know, I think their population peaked around 130 million. This is on a relatively small country with, you know, maybe 8% arable land, something like that, something crazy like that. So that, you know, their net, their, you know, their net importers of food, which brings us to the sort of the green quest type, type questions. And they, with some, not, not, not painlessly, but they managed to figure out a way to begin to keep the economy humming as their population began to deplete. And it does seem to me that there is a there is probably a point above which it's not desirable to have more people. I mean, do we want to have like 60 trillion people living on planet Earth? How would that not be a dystopian scenario? And this is one of those weird things in which you have to kind of try to find a, a, an Aristotelian balance, I think, between something like full speed ahead and the Enlightenment will figure out a way, you know, our Enlightenment science, post-Enlightenment science will find ways to solve every practical problem versus, you know, oh, we just can't have any more children, not in this world. I mean, there has to be some kind of moderate humanism that gets worked out in practice that accepts the fact that we're humans. We are in some ways, you know, creatures of the earth and that we have to live alongside it without turning every kind of real political discussion into 
a sacrifice to Gaia. The famous chimp lady, Jane Goodall, Jane Goodall just uh, at the World Economic Forum, went and said that uh, her, her wish, her dream, if it could be done without any suffering, of course, she's a nice person, would be to reduce the world's population to under 500 million people. Uh, that, of course, would mean uh, exterminating or, or annihilating in a nice way, uh, I don't know, 7 billion people, maybe more, who knows? Lots of people would have to stop existing, but in a nice way, only in a nice way. That, that's a nice blast from the past. It is the world of the population bomb of the sort of 60s liberalism that was only semi-eugenic anymore, but uh, more intent on the policy issue. Environmentalism was seen already as uh, some kind of defensive position. And, and the offensive agent was, of course, mankind. All, all of a sudden, democ the, the democratic character of capitalism I, everybody can buy stuff. Everybody's going to have a car or house or wants one at any rate, but he has a right to it, maybe. That, that must lead to the wipeout of the planet. It's, it's, it's offensive beyond belief. And so maybe, maybe it's time to be uh, horrifying in return to the horror caused by mankind. That's now indeed, um, again, very, very respectable. Uh, as you say in your essay, that's the oddity of Soil and Green, that it's a story where it's New York City of the future that looks just like the horrifying New York City of the 70s, which kind of makes sense. In a stagnating future, you're not going to get a gleaming futuristic anything. You're not going to get anything new, in fact, whatsoever. Most people are, are, are too poor to have anywhere to sleep. They just crowd around on, on, on stairways, on stairwells, in, on, on the steps themselves. Desperation, you see people dying in the streets of hunger, it seems. And this cop has to figure out what the conspiracy problem is, Chuck Heston, what is happening with the Soil and Green Corporation? And then it turns out, yeah, uh, they're feeding people to people. In the world of euthanasia, including his friend, who gets uh, euthanized, played by the great Eugene Robinson, pardon me, Ed G. Robinson. He can't stand it. Uh, he's an old man. He knows what the world was like before misery. And he can't stand this world of misery. And when he uh, hears the ugly truth, he just wants to commit suicide and uh, not have to face the extinction event of a world where you don't even have ocean-based protein, plankton, to turn into slop to feed what's left of the masses. It, it's strange to see not just Jane Goodall come back with to her environmentalism in an elite forum uh, 50 years, 60 years later, but it's strange that at the same forum, people are all for the soil and green proposals. They are all for assisted suicide. They are all for eating the bugs and living in the pot and all of these things, which are, of course, to some extent, uh, justified precisely on the basis we have explored in, soil and, in the case of Soil and Green. The world is in trouble. There's just not enough to go around, and that must mean that misery should be rationally administered. The last act of rationality is, in fact, the administration of misery. Previously, rationality was about uh, escaping misery, becoming as masters and possessors of nature, relieving man's estate, getting the good stuff. It's why people vote for rationalism. It's what justifies experts. It's not what explains expertise, but it is what justifies it democratically. Everybody ends up with a car and a home. Uh, everybody's kid has emergency services at the ready since people are paranoid uh, about the health of their kids. That's what keeps the civil peace. But it's no longer a persuasive belief. Our elites are the kinds of people who would have cheer the moralism of Soil and Green, and are also the kinds of people depicted as evil, ruthless people in Soil and Green. That is an astonishing transformation in the elite liberal view. 
in a certain way, they've never abandoned their claim to rationalism, to expertise, to superior knowledge, but they have entirely reversed what it means practically. Uh, and never in, in those 50 years could I point to a liberal politics that aimed at the kind of moderate uh, solution you were suggesting, that we have to restrain ourselves. We don't want to hunt everything into extinction, fish every fish into extinction. We don't want to do that. We're aware that we might because we're out of control, but we can set controls on this stuff. Largely, uh, the last 50 years have not been about uh, the extinction of the uh, fauna and flora we're aware of. And then this is interesting to us. I would say probably we're doing okay, or, or uh, it is not catastrophic. But I, I would admit that somehow it, we're not doing okay because we thought about it and have ever been by a combination of political consent, uh, public debate uh, experience from trying various things and uh, accumulated uh, institutional habits all together put a, a grandmaster plan for how we're not going to screw up any vital thing on the planet. So it is true that we cannot claim that uh, rationalism has any explicit claims that, that we would re really believe in when it comes to can we figure out what kinds of powers and what kinds of predicaments those powers cause? Can we put these things together in a reasonable way? Is there some kind of moderation be between our need to expand because we have more desires and our need to retrench or at least set limits because we might get out of control. Looking at those two kinds of problems, you can see these are rich people's problems. Poor people don't really have these many choices, but they also don't have these many problems. With our wealth and with our science, we also feel a lot more responsible. People at some level do feel that there's some kind of moral responsibility in mankind for mysterious events like, uh, you know, the, the, the patterns of hurricanes. Maybe we have too many hurricanes. I don't know. I have no idea how you would figure that out. But people can feel morally uh, about that for the same reason that they felt about it in the same way many thousands of years ago. So, so there's also this aspect of it. You know, why, why do you like the movie? Why is the drama compelling? In some way, the answer is for the same reason we're scared of storms and terrified of hurricanes. And we get the kind of preview uh, of the terror in our minds every time uh, the season comes around and the media tells us about it. You might be in a whole different part of the world and still worry about it. We have an astonishing uh, inclination, we could say for, from a liberal point of view, because we're enlightened, we claim knowledge and therefore responsibility. And on the other hand, from a democratic point of view, those people are going to die because of the hurricane or the wildfire or something. And we're people too. It could happen to us. Since we are comfortable, we can afford to have pity. Uh, or at least we think we can afford. And, uh, and so we do strangely feel more responsible for catastrophes. And uh, somewhere in the back of that is the demand that bad things shouldn't happen. Maybe hurricanes should simply not exist. Now, if you tell somebody that like, you shouldn't start shooting at the hurricane to prove your uh, uh, manhood, because you know, the, the hurricane might shoot the bullets back. But is it different when we have a moral demand that bad things don't happen? that wildfires don't happen, that hurricanes don't happen, that uh, catastrophic things don't happen. So there's a kind of, there's an aspect of this moralization of nature that makes me think, sure, our elite has changed practical viewpoints. It's anti-democratic, but there is a moral consensus, I would say, behind this kind of new elite tyranny that, uh, and that moral consensus is, radical demands for control over the environment. How could people uh, feel so sentimental about these problems, the suffering caused by uh, you know, 
climate change. Climate change is, is apparently killing many people in many ways. Well, your options are let them die or no, it's our fault. We have to do something about it in the way this uh, cashes out practically for partisan reasons, but for other reasons too. Because it's just a, a basic moral issue. You tell yourself, look, I've had enough problems already. I'm not taking this one. Too. This is not my problem. Or you could say, oh my God, I'm more sensitive and I'm taking this really seriously. People are suffering from the, from the suffering stuff. Uh, and, and that suggests that a moral consensus might be a lot more radical than a lot of the crazy things we are actually doing. Morally, we might be demanding only absolute control of what? I mean, what if it requires control over the sun and the sun's patterns of explosion? How do you create the climate, right? That's the, the weird thing. I mean, if you look at the tree, the tree rises up to the sun. You say, uh, you know, you need the energy. The whole all life stands on the ground of non-life. The planet is not alive in the way in which a tree is alive. The sun is not alive. How much control do we need before we can settle this moral issue that people don't have to be scared about natural catastrophes or unnatural catastrophes? I mean, this was sort of the theme of Neil Stevenson's last book, which was something else I've written on. And, you know, where a, a sort of muskish type billionaire comes up, you know, devises the plan to not, not you know, or to radically change uh, the, the earth, you know, as a way to counter climate change and then all kinds of raise all kinds of concerns. Will the, you know, will the care be worse than the disease? But that in its way is somehow within, I think, it's extreme, but it's within something like the post-enlightenment or, you know, the enlightenment kind of, you know, desire to control, to master nature. It's astronomical in its effects. But if we understand nature as something like the whole of the cosmos, then it's rough, it's somehow within the ambit of, you know, the enlightenment promise. Uh, no matter what the challenge, you know, human reason and even genius can rise to it. And, you know, and we can basically, you know, we can, we can, you know, we are masters and possessors of nature. We'll do what needs to be done. I, I take no stance on the efficacy of this particular uh, procedure. It's certainly outside my wheelhouse. One thing I want to go back to is, because I really do go back and forth on this, is that question, you know, is this where we're at? Is there some real consensus? Okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll live in the pods, we'll eat the bugs, et cetera. We'll euthanize if we, you know, if life gets tough enough. Is that really what I'm seeing? I don't know. I go back and forth. Or is it you will live in the pod, you will eat the bugs? And there, I think, is a sort of a tension, right? Because if it's the latter, that's class warfare. I understand that. That's not new. That goes back. You know, right? That goes back to ancient Greek. And for Aristotle, it's somehow it's really at the at the core of what political life is. And the question is whether, you know, you can keep it within the ambit of politics or whether it descends into something like stasis and civil war. And that's very understandable. It may not be pretty. But, you know, if you live in a world where you genuinely are concerned about resources, maybe not at the, the sort of extreme apocalyptic level of soil and green, but you have a sense of declining resources for whatever reason, then you're going to make sure as a, you know, that, you, that your, your group, that your class controls the bulk of the resources. And you will, you know, you will, you will prefer that, you know, privation be experienced by the other guy. That's not pretty, but it's very understandable to me. It doesn't reflect anything new, I think, under the sun. But the other way of thinking is the belief that we actually should radically curtail what we think the normal experience of human life should be in order to make ourselves fit for some new environment. You know, now we're getting in, you know, that's a sort of a more dystopian, black mirror-ish territory. That might be something. The question really is how widespread is it? How sincere is it? I tend to think not. I, you know, it, it is one of those things that always strikes me as both uh, more online 
than more real world. And something that, you know, we do see expressed more by a select class of, as you say, elites who themselves do not show much sign of uh, reducing their intake in any sense. If we think of this as somehow being a question about humanism, I think humanism is probably alive and well in the sense that, you know, what we take to be the human life, the, you know, the norm of human experience, nobody really wants to get rid of that, at least not for themselves. There are probably a few true believers, however, who are overrepresented on uh, certain online spaces, would be my guess. Yeah, that's, that too is somehow involved in this sort of uh, dystopian art like uh, Soylent Green. How changeable really is our condition? Obviously, uh, America especially has this uh, experience because the modern change feels like power in America and it feels like just love of what America can do. In America, it's a love of one's own to build rockets. Uh, people somehow think America invented rockets, actually. You know, there's always somebody who wishes to show that he's clever and says, actually, uh, you know, there were German scientists or there was somebody else or there were some other immigrants who brought this. It's not that American. But Americans experience it as homegrown. And uh, there are uh, obviously many experiences of modernization in politics that are much more compressed and more shocking than Americans. South Korea, most recently. Japan, before that. Very compressed modernization, vast transformation from feudal life and uh, poverty to th this completely different situation where you have urban agglomeration under technological conditions of the 21st century, and uh, obviously no children to speak of in the case of uh, South Korea. So uh, from, a from every point of view, the transformation is obvious in one man's lifetime. But, uh, but that does not make people like it, the way Americans like modernity, the way Americans like technology, the way Americans like this notion that you get freedom out of it. You can do what you want. You can have more of what you want. It's uh, not that there are not advantages in any of these other cases. Of course there are, but I, there doesn't seem to be a, a belief that it is our own thing. Uh, as you were saying, in, in South Korea and Japan, people want to be Korean and Japanese, which is not a modern or technological or industrial thing. Uh, people reject immigrants, and uh, by the standards of liberalism, these are atrociously racist societies. But it turns out if you go there, uh, people are fine. They're, uh, they're not unhappy. They're not plotting evil to anybody. None of the madness that liberals get, uh, get into on the, on the issue of racism actually exists. But it is the case that uh, in these other places, you see that uh, one's own is this ancient Japanese or Korean thing. Uh, it's not, as with America, uh, I don't know, uh, the car. It's not the TV or the internet. It's not whatever kind of meme culture, if that's what it is, is happening online now. There's always a, maybe a very important anchor that is pre-modern that doesn't show as much in America. And so maybe uh, the experience of change is simply more powerful because it's perceived as our own thing, our own transformation. And that can also lead from enthusiasm to hysteria, as with Planet of the Apes or Soil and Green, when you end up thinking that our own thing, innovation, transforming our condition, is uh, actually suicide. We thought it would be heaven, but it's not. It's hell. Uh, obviously, it's not hard for sentimentality to turn to cruelty or enthusiasm to hysteria. In fact, it seems necessary that it should do so, since reality will intervene at some point. Disappointment must set in once you deal with reality.
but we, even in this specifically American experience where, where modernization gives you uh, such a sense of yourself, I, I think there are a couple of varieties of experience. One we've already mentioned, you know, what if you're like uh, Elon Musk? That, that guy would seem to be the solution to the soil and green problem and everything related to it. He believes in solar energy. He believes in nuclear energy. He believes in space travel. He believes in cutting down climate change. If Elon Musk can successfully install a tyranny with the enthusiastic consent of at least some part of the country, then you know our problems are solved. But do people want to be part of the Elon Musk project? There's, you know, dude's a celebrity, but he seems not to inspire much enthusiasm. There is not Elon Musk transformation in American education or taste. You're not going to get a lot more. Engineering isn't cool, okay? Uh, Americans often nowadays seem to look at Elon Musk launching a rocket every couple of hours, and nobody even bothers. So there's a suggestion that maybe people don't want to go to Mars. Maybe they don't think all of this adventure or all of this techno view of the world. Uh, you can be a coder, you can be on a computer, but also have a massive effect on the uh, you know real life. Maybe it's not so cool. There's another kind of sentiment that's a lot more like the problem you see in Soylent Green, that moral hysteria kind of moral concern that suggests there, there's something wrong with us. And then, uh, you know, technology with, with respect to environmentalism, this is ambiguous. Elon Musk surely wants to save the environment, uh, all of these clean energy things, what have you, but, uh, but he wants to control it too. The, the moral demand on, on the part of the people who are indifferent to the victims of wildfires is that uh, maybe we need sacrifices to Gaia. We have sinned against the world, and I, we want the world to stop hating us, but we have to suffer for our sins. We have to suffer. There's no way out of it because you, if we think about the way out of it, that just means we want more control. That is, the, the Elon Musk experience of nature is that you, you grab it by the hair. This moral experience of nature that is awe before climate change is that you should just sit down and look at it. Nature is what is happening to you. You don't get to do things to it. There's a massive shift from the active to the passive. In, in every respect, even, even with regards to art, it's morally more contemplative and uh, more about receptivity and suffering for that reason. Uh, and, and beyond that, I think you, you see, and this worries us in some of the crazier things that are said out loud, I agree with you that the crazy people, they're just doing it for show, really. A few of them are believers, but it doesn't matter for the same reason. It doesn't matter that there were crazy people in previous generations, they weren't in charge. But I would say that we're, we're spooked out by the crazy things we hear that, that make us think of nihilism because there is a growing worry that our powers aren't even good for us, that our powers make us think things are nice and things are actually whatever the opposite of nice is. Probably the opposite of nice is horror. So it's, you know, that, that some rationalists could get sort of romantic is I think easier to understand than that some rationalists would turn to something closer to nihilism, say that our uh, techno-rationality, the coding, the computers, the so on, what they reveal to us is horror. It's, it's just the world out there. The world won't love you. You can look at the sunrise all you care. It's just nuclear explosions. That would be an intellectual correlative of this moral problem of passivity. It's harder to get people excited about practical things, technical or political, and uh, it's, it's especially hard to do that in the way we used to do it through mass media and through education. Higher educated elites of America are not the, the, the higher and more elite educated, uh, more 
active in, in, in any of the practical ways we might have expected. I mean, it's an interesting point. If you think about people across this political spectrum as being somehow agreeing that maybe that the status quo is untenable and it tends to go from there different ways, you know, the sort of uh, you have, we think of it as left and right, that maybe it's better thought of as something like restrainers versus, you know, those in favor of abundance. And I mean, with the restrainers being something like, you know, we need to radically reduce our standards of living. They're never pointing to something like historic or past or something like, oh, let's look at, let's look at, you know, you know, these older you know, Japanese towns, or let's look at, you know, let's look at some of these more beautiful European towns and think about what it would be like to live with constraints, but in a beautiful and humanizing setting. That's always something very unappealing. But conversely, I mean, you know, the kind of the going to Mars crowd, like what the hell is on Mars? I mean, there is not a single, I mean, you know, and when you look at something like the more uh, utopian science fiction depictions, it's always like, well, somehow we'll get, you know, there'll be a planet that's basically Earth-like and we'll get there. But there are no Earth-like planets anywhere within anywhere that, you know, and we don't have nothing like any of the technology or even the hope of these, the, the, the theoretical idea of a technology that would get us there, you know, in something like a normal span. So would we still be human in the sense that we understand ourselves as human if we were living on Mars or Mars-like planets, basically planets that are bare, denuded? You can come up with all kinds of extravagant ideas of terraforming, but in practice, probably what you're looking at is that people will just, if we want to keep having more people, they'll have to live under conditions that we would not recognize as conditions for humanity, at least for the past, as long as humanity's been around. And I'm very sensitive to this stuff. You know, I don't even like downtown Toronto. And I can remember living in Shanghai, which is such an interesting place because it has, you know, neighborhoods of remarkable beauty, like the French Concession or something, and then just tremendous, just, just hideous development uh, of, of a scale and a, a kind of a sense of just, just denuded environment that is almost soul-crushing, at least to me. Perhaps I'm too sensitive to these things. But I do have a strong sense that, you know, Part of being human is, 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 is an almost natural response to our environment. And either you have a built environment that in some way conforms to the natural one, or you have a built environment that completely overrides the natural one. And the latter strikes me as dehumanized in a profound way. So what would it mean to say that we're, you know, humanity could live indefinitely through non-Earth-like conditions? Or conversely, what would it mean to say that humanity could live indefinitely on Earth, but in under conditions that were so far removed from what we thought of as normal, you know, normal life. In neither case, I think, is there a sense of, you know, how can we find, you know, how can we find a way to live with constraints, but in a manner that is both conducive to human flourishing, uh, but that, but that also, you know, and also is compatible with, you know, with maintaining and preserving and stewarding, you know, the, you know, the natural environment. Somehow that, that, that middle piece seems to be missing from so much of our discussion. It's glaringly absent in dystopian science fiction, but by that very absence, you know, it, in some way that, you know, it calls our attention to it precisely by that, in that manner. Yeah, I think that's right. Ultimately, the, even more interesting than how the Soylent Green warning became the Soylent Green ideology for liberal elites, uh, it's more interesting to see the sort of stuff that's missing in there, but pointed by the moments of human friendship between uh, Chuck Heston and, and Ed Robinson. And Ed Robinson keeps reminding him of the past. It was human, where you felt the goodness of being alive in the world, or his moments of tenderness with uh, this lady that other people treat as though she's merely a slave. 
in those moments, surely the suggestion uh, is there, there is that we're morally outraged at this fantasy, this fairy tale that's so ugly on the basis of what we want to preserve. It's supposed to indeed, as you suggest, remind us that we are for humanity and we have fairly strong ideas about what that is. We are not looking to be liberated from it, which I guess is what the Mars proposition is. The precise, you know, Mars is an education. Uh, to get there, you have to survive death every moment of every day. And to live there, you have to survive death every moment of every day through the powers of technical daring. That is, stripping away everything else from humanity is a necessary education for mankind. The assumption there seems to be that people are just insufficiently dedicated to becoming engineers. They have failed in that regard. Uh, people turned hippies and hipsters and uh, so on. And uh, the result is uh, we don't really care about technological progress, but we also demand comfort without having to pay for it, as though our cities were not immensely complicated engines at odds with the, the very ground they're built into. And, and obviously, that, that criticism, there's a lot of truth to it. But it, uh, surely the, the solution cannot be this sort of full dedication to techno-slavery. And, and that's, again, maybe... Our all to human love of our environment, caring for old cities, so on, uh, maybe is somehow tied up with freedom. Because after all, we're somehow learning because of our new tech and our new tech overlords that technology tends to be driven by tyranny and to drive tyranny in turn. It goes back thousands of years to the kinds of despots who managed to control with agriculture on rivers, from the Nile to the Tigris and the Euphrates, down to the Yangtze in China, whoever can control irrigation controls literally the source of life for all these people. And the coordination problem simply requires despotism, armed people dealing with slaves. And it works. And that's uh, how uh, people think we get civilization. And uh, people feel that way. I would say a lot of the complaint against growth nowadays or capitalism or what have you is people are realizing that the, their, their jobs make them feel like slaves. It, it's a moral objection, not an objection regarding uh, the knowledge or the science uh, involved in our way of life. It's just a moral objection to the kinds of jobs uh, we have to do and the kinds of jobs that people weren't complaining about, say, 100 years ago. Uh, moral standards have changed in that regard. So, so with the restrainers, the people who don't want infinite growth, I would say that seems to me to be why they don't want infinite growth. They think it makes for slavery. People have to do slavish jobs in an economy that uh, optimizes for capital, the result of which is that nobody ever has moral concerns. You can buy your conscience, so to speak. You know, it's kind of a silly hippie slogan, but you know, that's somehow been coming ever since uh, you know, they, they paved paradise, turned it into a parking lot. That sort of uh, you know, song, uh, hippie music, that's what it's about. The kinds of people who can think about paving paradise and turning into a parking lot, uh, the, the modern settling of Hawaii, that's uh, the kinds of people who think that way are not the kinds of people who ever stop to think about the consequences of their efficiency, the consequences of their bureaucratic allocation of labor and of capital. So it seems like a revolt against economic rationalism, a revolt against something that seems inherently tyrannic. Since after all, you know, the arrival of economics as a modern science, which was supposed to make people nicer, fewer political theological murders and uh, catastrophes, also has this odd character that you can't talk back to it. Supposedly, economics is something you can't argue with, whichever economics you're talking about. You know, whenever people uh, disagree about economics, they are, are agreed at an obvious but underlying level 
that there is no disagreeing with them as economists. There's only a disagreement about which economy is right. Once you establish which economics actually works, then obviously we will have to be enslaved to it. So I, I get why the restrainers feel the way they do. I, I get why they are against techno acceleration. I think there's, there's a lot of strength to that, I believe, specifically for this reason. They seem to be saying we have to defend freedom against the necessity embodied by economics and capitalism. No, we agree. I mean, the, the promise of freedom, which I take to be basically the Enlightenment promise rather than something like a classical sense of political freedom, it, it's notionally unlimited. And you know, over time, it requires that you know, the human the human soul or the human self or whatever expand to encompass those beyond the point that I think are plausible psychologically. And you can see the damage that it does perhaps in our politics, you know, in, in a more kind of limited sense or just in a more real world sense. That very American idea of, of unlimited abundance, I'm very drawn to it. Um, interestingly, you don't see it as much in Canada, although Canada is actually an even bigger country than the United States. So it's, it's, interesting, it's, it's probably interesting to reflect on that a bit. But in any case, that very American sense of abundance, it's very appealing. But it also requires, you know, and you can see it in something I think very well expressed in Ben Franklin's you know, notes concerning the increase of mankind. But it also was a reflection of a particular practical situation, namely the fact that we had far fewer people, you know, within the same landscape. And even then, it, it did, it's not as though it didn't have its drawbacks. I mean, you had, you know, the, the violent competition uh, with what, you know, with America, they call Native Americans, and in Canada, we think of as First Nations. You had, you know, the near extinction of Buffalo. You have, you know, massive deforestation and so on. And, and, and I think, that, and this, of course, produces sort of, I think, a healthy, uh, response in the form of early environmentalism. It was not as though the this very American sense of abundance is without its cost or its drawbacks. And that's particularly the case that, you know, we now, our population is now, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a magnitude, it's an order of magnitude higher than it was, you know, living with the same resources, living in the same area. You know, of course, now we have fair housing concerns and so on. I mean, the world, the physical world is limited. And, you know, the possibility of expanding to the cosmos, which is in a sense, probably limited to, but only in theory. We're not there, and I, there's no, there's no, there's no real, there's, you know, we can't really get 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 there from here. So, embracing those limits is very, I think, in a measured, and prudent, and sort of healthy sense, it seems to be seems to be beyond us right now, at least in our current politics. Um, and part of this probably is just bound up with the uh, the class elements, which are always sort of hidden and are hard to talk about. Um, except in these sort of, you know, knee-jerk populist ways where you say, well, ha-ha, Al Gore, you know, so-and-so has a private jet, which is funny, and it makes for a good tweet, but doesn't really get us very far. Yeah, so-and-so has a private jet. Yes, they're being hypocrite. Uh, but at the same time, what are we supposed to do tomorrow? What are the, you know, what are the proper limits? And this is interestingly true, even because most of the world's population actually looks like it's going to be declining outside of sub-Saharan Africa and probably Israel. Uh, you know, you see the birth rates are on the decline. Now, we're not going to experience that because you have a sort of delay in the demographic impact. But managing that decline while at the same time, you know, dealing with these problems of resources plus the insanity of our current politics, very hard to do, apparently. And it may be beyond us precisely because we don't have a, a sensible way of talking about, you know, the place, the role, the place of human beings within the natural environment. I think that's a, that's a very good concluding note. I think it's, you know, in a way we turn to 70s pulp or dystopias because there's not something quite as obviously compelling that we have now. There's no soil and green for 2023. 
we might not, in fact, even be able to deal with it. Seems like both uh, a lot of our politics and political disagreements are desperate wishing that we can do verbal gymnastics, have blame or praise independent of the issues that our words are describing. These are quarrels about words rather than quarrels about the world and about the human soul. We neither have any way of grasping where do we stand on these kinds of moral intellectual issues? What do you think makes you a man? What, what's the experience you're talking about? And where does that stand to the world? We, nor, on the other hand, we start from the kinds of things we have to get, keep going rather than get going. The, everything that works in a city, in a country to keep, for our way of life. How about we start from the issue, okay, can we keep it going? Let's not grind down to a halt. Uh, and, and see what that demands of us and what that allows us to do. So neither this more contemplative concern with what makes us human, nor this more practical concern with what we're in the midst of and have to continue doing, uh, these are not, uh, neither one is something uh, that, that has any purchase. There's no part of the public in fiction or politics or anything in between that uh, really speaks to that. And that's an, that's an oddity. It would be better if we were to ask ourselves what we're dealing with. And on the other hand, this sort of thing you're mentioning, global population decline, it, it's good to face that. There's no way to experience the fact that over 300 years, the population of the planet has ballooned, first in Europe and then elsewhere, and that now the demographic growth has stopped and in fact is going in reverse. And we'll see some kind of opposite change, not children everywhere, but old people everywhere, to say the in the crassest way, but I don't think a misleading way. And uh, those are different problems to have, just like the America of a few settlers and uh, endangered by Indians and poor is a different problem than the America of more than 300 uh, million people and wealth that has never been imagined in world history. These are different problems to have. Uh, it's, it's strange that we don't have any comparative view. At least Soylent Green tried to do an intro montage about American industrial success and uh, a terror of the future of how this might turn into a nightmare. We don't often have this kind of historical perspective that says uh, to us where we are in the picture. That I would say is an oddity. In that sense, enlightenment isn't working. It's just as a matter of public concern that people should know basically what it's like now, what it was like in grandpa's day or so, and what you might expect for your grandkids. I find that very odd. All right, David, thank you again for joining me for one of these uh, wide-ranging conversations about the kind of culture and politics we wish we had and that we try to engage in. I think uh, it, it's it's not ideal that we should uh, have to turn to pop culture to start talking about these things, but I'm not against it, not just because it's enjoyable and pop culture is enjoyable, but it seems that maybe that's a part of humanity we do need to restore. People should have somewhat, I guess today it would be called cringe rather than lowbrow. They should have some kind of earnest uh, attempt to grasp with what it's like to, to go through the world today and see if it resonates with people enough that they think, you know, maybe there is something to it. Maybe we do have an issue we should confront, whether morally or practically. So that, I think, is something that middle-brow art provided that I don't know how you could get now. And it's at least good that we used to have it. That too, for comparison purposes, is very necessary. It's a necessity of obtaining perspective. Just seeing what we used to be like 
reveal something about how we've changed, of course. And so we, we, we should maybe do yet another conversation, maybe something about Neil Stevenson and the combination of catastrophe and uh, many techno spirit of adventure. No, thanks. I realized we didn't we didn't actually talk about the movie that much. Although I, it is sort of sometimes more fun to just use pop culture as a jumping off point rather than to focus obsessively on the text itself, which is one of those things that separates us from the postmodernists, I guess. Thanks again, and all the best until next time, David. Likewise.